0: Hi, everyone. It's time for another edition of Ask Jeff. There have been lots of constitutional issues in the news, so send me the ones you find most interesting, and the team and I will answer as many as we can soon. The deadline is May 29th, Memorial Day, so don't wait. You can submit anonymously at bit.ly forward slash askjeffpodcast, or if you incline in a different direction, you can tweet the questions using the hashtag askjeffncc. Or just email them to me jrosen at constitutioncenter.org thanks and look forward to hearing from you soon i'm jeffrey rosen president and ceo of the national constitution center and welcome to we the people a weekly show of constitutional debate the national constitution center is the only institution in america chartered by congress to disseminate information about the u.s constitution on a non-partisan basis. And on today's show, we return to President Trump's executive order temporarily suspending refugee admission and travel from several countries in the Middle East. On back-to-back Mondays this month, which is May, two federal appellate courts, the Fourth and Ninth Circuits, heard arguments in challenges to the president's second order. The order is currently blocked by lower courts, thanks to challenges from Hawaii, Washington State, and others. Will the order remain on hold? Or will the appellate courts rule in favor of the president? And will the case ultimately reach the Supreme Court? And what will happen there? To find out, we have two of America's leading scholars of immigration and the Constitution. Joining us by Skype is Leah Littman, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. And joining us in studio in Philadelphia is our returning champion, a scholar on whose work both Leah and I have relied uh, with with, uh, gratitude, Earl Maltz, Distinguished Professor of Law at Rutgers Law School. Leah, Earl, thank you so much
1: for joining. Thank you for having me, Jeff.
2: Thanks so much for having us.
0: Leah, let's jump right in and begin with you. Uh, Tell us about what the second travel ban order says and what the main constitutional and arguments raised against it were on Monday in Seattle.
2: Of course. So as you mentioned, it's the second travel ban uh, that has been issued by the White House. This ban was issued uh, the first week of March. And among other things, what the executive order does is it suspends entry into the United States for 90 days from nationals of six countries, Sudan, Syria, Iran, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen. It also, for 120 days, suspends the refugee program. Um, On top of that, it also reduces the cap on the number of refugees who can enter the United States from over 100,000 to 50,000. And it also requests that the Department of Homeland Security and attorney general begin an investigation to study the procedures that other countries use um, in assisting uh, the United States and identifying persons to obtain legal documents to enter the United States. Um, so that was the order that was enacted in March, um, and it resembles in All of those respects, um, except for a few, uh, an order that was issued by the administration the last week of January.
0: Uh, Thanks so much for that and for describing it so well, because there's so much uh, on the table there. Earl, any uh, additions to Leah's description of the second order? And why don't you tell us specifically in what ways does the second order differ from the first and why do you think that those differences are constitutionally or legally significant?
1: Well, I'm not sure that I think they're constitutionally or legally significant, but uh, the way that they differs from the first is largely in that the first order applied to people who had legal status, who had left the country, and were coming back. Whereas the second order uh, allows those people, at least some, I, I would, at least many of them, to return to the country. I think that's a That's the sort of short version of the differences between the two statutes, between the two orders, Uh, one of them. And also, in addition, uh, the first order also applied to Iraq, and the second order does not apply to Iraq.
0: And Leah, is there a difference in the calling out of Christian refugees by name, and does that have any constitutional or legal significance?
2: Uh, Yes. So the earlier order that was um, signed in January said that the um, ban on entry would not apply to religious minorities. Um, So it didn't actually identify Christians by name. But because the countries that um, were identified for the 90-day ban on entry into the United States or Muslim-majority countries. Presumably, the religious minorities uh, that would be exempt from the order from those countries would be Christians. Um, uh, and, of course, the president had um, suggested as much in some interviews about the order. Um, on top of that, the earlier order had actually um suspended refugee refugees from Syria indefinitely. Um, and the current order does not do so. As to whether these distinctions are legally or constitutionally relevant, um, you know, the prior order certainly gave a more explicit reference to religion in that it said religious minorities wouldn't be subject to the executive order's bans on entry. Um, but uh, it didn't actually identify a particular religious group. And that being said, its reference to religion certainly calls to mind one of the constitutional claims that the challengers are raising to the executive order, which is the Establishment Clause, which, among other things, prohibits the government from favoring some religions over others or disfavoring certain religions over others.
0: Great. Well, now the question is well and truly joined. Earl, let's jump right into the Establishment Clause claim. In the oral arguments in Seattle, uh, the lawyer arguing against the statute, my dear brother-in-law, Neil Katyal, who made the whole Rosen family proud with his uh, televised arguments, focused on President Trump's campaign statements. And he was pressed about whether the campaign statements alone would provide the necessary support for a successful challenge to the executive order. And he said, no, they wouldn't uh, provide sufficient evidence standing alone. But he pointed to lots of other examples of anti-Muslim animus. Uh, Trump's statement on the signing of the executive order, we all know what that means. And Trump's campaign statements calling for a complete shutdown of Muslim immigration and there was a big question about whether the presumption should be uh, of regularity or what the objective observer would think in identifying anti-Muslim animus. So, Earl, do you believe that this second order is infected with anti-Muslim animus? How does one look for such animus, and uh, uh, what did you make of the uh, discussion and the argument?
1: Well, I think I need to start a little before that, because I'm not sure whether anti-Muslim animus is even relevant. Because uh, we can start with a couple of facts. The first fact is that uh, in the history of the United States, there is never, the Supreme Court has never struck down a a substantive uh, limitation on immigration as unconstitutional, that's the first. Uh, and in particular, there was a case from 1904 which has been uh, cited with approval as late as 1972, United States X-Rel Turner versus Williams, which explicitly said that uh, non-citizens from, uh, who were outside the United States were not protected by the First Amendment when they were, when they were seeking admission to the United States. So the argument has been that, well, the reason that the, the Establishment Clause argument is, has been used is the argument is that the, the Establishment Clause is not an individual rights clause at all, but it is a structural, a structural limitation on the ability of the, of the federal government. The problem with that is that the Establishment Clause has never in the history of the United States been used by the Supreme Court to strike down uh, a law on the basis that it uh, put imposed particular disadvantages on a specific religious minority. those have always been characterized as free exercise claims. That is if one looks at the uh, First Amendment and the re- religion clauses, there are two different parts. There is uh, the establishment clause which has been which is speaks about, prohibits the establishment of religion, which has historically been, there is a technical meaning of establishment of religion, which is a religion is established as the official religion, but has historically been used to say that, only to say, basically, that the uh, federal government cannot give uh, uh, special advantages to some particular religion Or religion, as opposed to as opposed to non-religion, which so this does not this uh, order does not do that. These kinds of claims have historically been universally been characterized as free exercise claims that the federal government is prohibited from uh, interfering with the free exercise of religion. The problem is, from the perspective of the challengers, is that the free exercise clause can't be anything but an individual right. So the argument is really, so they have said, well, there is this animus thing which has historically been a free exercise issue, but we're going to characterize it as an establishment clause issue because it is a, by characterizing it as an establishment clause issue, that uh, it becomes a, uh, they can say that it is a structural limitation. But then in speaking about it as an establishment clause issue, they then say, well, if there shows animus against individuals because of their religion, that's an establishment, although historically that's not what establishments have been about.
0: Very interesting. All right, Leah, just to summarize Earl's fascinating points, he says anti-Muslim animus doesn't matter because only uh, the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment forbids anti-Muslim animus, and that doesn't even apply to non-citizens coming into the country thanks to this uh, early 20th century case. And he says that the establishment clause is a structural prohibition. Uh, On the interactive constitution, you'll learn that the framers meant it to prevent the federal government from disestablishing state religions, but Earl says it doesn't create an individual right not to be discriminated against. Uh, And therefore, uh, the whole question that the judges were focusing on in Seattle uh, was beside the point. What is your response?
2: Sure, so I guess I would say three things. First is even though it's right that the Supreme Court has never struck down as unconstitutional an action of the federal government of immigration on the basis of the Establishment Clause, you know, nor has it done so on grounds of equal protection um, or uh, other related protections. But what the Supreme Court has done is it said that the constitutional concerns that would be raised by the government's interpretation of a particular statute or executive order are so compelling that the court would read the relevant statutes and executive orders to deny the government a power or the exercise of a power that would potentially violate the Constitution. Um, and in this case, there happens to be an argument that the executive order that President Trump signed uh, isn't authorized by the relevant immigration statutes. So um, this case is of a piece um, with other immigration cases that have raised constitutional concerns, very real constitutional concerns, and the Supreme Court has suggested that those constitutional rules apply in the immigration context, but has, for whatever reason, elected to resolve those cases. On statutory grounds. Um, so one case um, I'm thinking of is Zavadas versus uh, Davis, a case about whether the executive can claim authority to indefinitely detain persons who are subject to removal proceedings. Um, second, I don't disagree at all with Earl that the Establishment Clause claim in the entry ban litigation overlaps in significant part with. Um, Uh, a core tenet of the Free Exercise Clause, namely the principle that the government can't act on the basis of animus toward particular religious groups. Um, But I would say is that's not really a bug. It's kind of a feature of our constitutional system, that there are Um, interlocking constitutional guarantees that are overlapping. So, for example, the Equal Protection Clause also forbids the government from acting on the basis of animus. And if the government, you know, acted on the basis of animus against a particular religion, that would arguably implicate both the Equal Protection Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Um, And while it You know, again, is probably right that many of the individuals who are subject to and harmed by the entry ban uh, don't have free exercise rights in the sense that they are not um, American citizens or otherwise with legal status in the United States or on American soil. Um, The Establishment Clause um, is, as Earl was saying, you know, a structural guarantee. And what that means is it forbids the government from exercising its power in certain. Ways. And in that way, the Establishment Clause is similar to, for example, a law that, um, or rather the provision of the Constitution that requires Congress to enact laws through bicameralism and presentment. So if, for example, Paul Ryan signed on a napkin, I repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, He couldn't actually enforce that as law, even though the individuals who might be harmed by that don't have constitutional right or arguably don't have a constitutional right to their health insurance or health care coverage. There are lots of provisions of the Constitution that prohibit the government from taking certain actions um, that don't necessarily harm individuals with constitutional individual rights. And I think that the establishment clause um, is one of them. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with the claim that the original meaning of the establishment clause was just to prevent the federal government from disestablishing state religions. I know that um, that's a view that Justice Thomas has and that many scholars share. Um, But I uh, believe uh, there is also evidence from uh, James Madison and an article written by Michael McConnell that suggests the framers were skeptical of uh, attempts to establish religion by using religion as a basis for citizenship or, um, uh, you know, it, 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 the ability to become um, part of the United States. And so that is, I think, a principle that is reflected in the Constitution in the Establishment Clause in the Free Exercise Clause, in the Equal Protection Clause, and many other places. And in this case, the Establishment Clause just happens to be the um, front and center of the case.
0: Great. Well, in this very sophisticated discussion, Leah, you just uh, said that uh, both the Establishment Clause should be read to provide Uh, a principle against religious uh, discrimination that might apply in this circumstance. And you also said that in the past, the court has avoided this question by deciding similar cases on statutory grounds. I wanna get to those statutory grounds in a moment, but Earl, just to resolve the case before the Ninth Circuit, if the court, if the judges decide that anti-Muslim animus is a relevant uh, consideration and they debate whether or not to look at the president's campaign statements or not, do you think they should find anti-Muslim animus in this case?
1: That's a, actually a more complicated question. That, <laughs> no, that's, that, that, that's just a—the that, reason that it's a more complicated question is that when you talk about what we mean by anti-Muslim animus in this context, the question is, in particular with respect to uh, President Trump, why he— had this particular idea about Muslims, and it was not that the uh, that he had a great objection to people being on a prayer rug and praying five times a day. It was a sense or his view that Muslims, particularly Muslims from particular countries, were more likely to present a threat to the United States, and to use the and. I want to make that clear about what I mean by that, or what he, try to say what he might say, what he meant by that. That is, that if, for example, one took 1,000 people from, randomly chose 1,000 people from Syria and 1,000 people from Finland and asked, is it at least marginally more likely that if we let the 1,000 people in from Syria, that they were, that some of them might be terrorists? And I think most of us would say at least it probably is marginally more likely. Similarly, if we compared 1,000 Muslims from Syria to 1,000 Coptic Christians from Syria and said we were going to let each of them eat in, the 1,000 people is it marginally more likely that the, among the 1,000 Muslims that there would be uh, terrorists than among the 1,000 Christians? And I think most of us would probably say yes. Now that's not to say that most Muslims, or even that it would be even likely, or that 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 even one that one or two would in fact be uh, terrorists, but simply that it is marginally more likely. So the so so this argument about Muslim animus interacts with arguments about national security that I think that most people would say would be appropriate reasons for talking about. Uh, uh, banning particular banning particular groups from entering the United States. So what we really have is a question here. This is one of the, uh, Leah was talking about structural issues, and we see a structural issue, a, a different kind of structural issue in this kind of litigation, which is that the question is whether, uh, so the president is making a judgment whether based upon his prejudices or not, which he believes to be relevant to the national security of the United States and the foreign policy of the United States, so the que- once you start reading in these kinds of limitations on his authority, then you have the question of well, the president does this. Is some judges have said it's constitutional? Some judges have said it's not constitutional. Is it that we are we think structurally that it's a good idea to have? Uh, individual judges from wherever whether it is from hawaii or from virginia or from montana or from california second guessing the president on these issues
0: excellent Um, okay leah i think what our listeners would like to know what i would like to know now is really what to expect from the supreme court if it agrees to hear the case in other words what is the weight of the current doctrine say as judges balance these questions of anti-Muslim animus against questions of national security. So just to imagine the Supreme Court takes the case. Um, how do you think it would resolve it? And in particular, might Judge Gorsuch make any difference?
2: Um, sure. So, you know, I think one of the first questions that the Supreme Court will have to address is not only the question that Earl was talking about, whether animus is um, you know, relevant to the immigration context, but also there's been a uh, back and forth between the challengers in the United States government about what the relevant body of case law is to apply to this case. So the government is arguing that a set of cases, um, and most prominently uh, Mandel, is the proper standard of review for a court to apply to this executive order. Under Mandel, um, that case involved an exclusion of a speaker who wanted to come to the university um, on the grounds uh, that he was a Uh, communist, I believe, Um, and the court in Mandel said that when reviewing that kind of determination by the president, the courts are limited to reviewing whether an action was um, facially legitimate and bona fide or in good faith. Um, And the challengers, Hawaii um, or the International Refugee Assistance Project in the Fourth Circuit, are arguing that they win under that standard, to be sure, but in the alternative, that what the court should do is apply its more traditional establishment clause doctrine in the domestic context. Um, And so, so that will be one question that the court will have to address, whether the proper body of law to apply is something that looks more like Mandel or something that looks more like, say, um, McCreary County, a case about whether a county can put up a, a monument um, to the Ten Commandments. So that will be one question. Um, and, you know, as, as to what I think the court will do, you know, I, I guess I kind of think it will say Mendel governs here. And then it will have to address the fact that the facts of this case are very different. Different than the ordinary case that makes its way to a court where a challenger is arguing that some government action was not taken in good faith and may have been motivated by impermissible animus. And so I think what the court will have to address is what exactly the bona fide part of Mandel means. Um, Does bonafide fide only require the government to recite a reason that, if true, would uh, justify an action. Or does bona fide slash a good faith requirement require the government to demonstrate that an actual reason for the ban was not infected by animus or impermissible reasons? And as to what I think the court will do. Um, you know, I I should disclose I joined an amicus brief arguing that the um, executive order is unconstitutional. So I I, I think I'm right. <laughs> I think that we're right. Um, so so I think that um, the the court would likely invalidate this order as to on what grounds. Um, I think that in keeping with the cases that I was mentioning earlier on the podcast. The court may gesture in the direction of constitutional concerns, but probably would be likely to resolve the case on statutory grounds.
0: Thanks very much for that. And thanks for calling our attention to the Mandel case from 1972, which says that the uh, U.S. Attorney General has the right to refuse someone's entry to the U.S. under the Immigration and Nationalization Act. That calls our attention to the central statutory provision at issue in the case, which is section 1182 of the US code, which gives the president broad authority to suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens. That's clashing against another provision at issue in this case, section 1152, which forbids discrimination based on nationality in the issuance of immigration visas. Earl, do you agree with Leah's uh, analysis Uh, and believe that Mandel will be a central case here? And how do you think the justices would reconcile the competing impulses of these two provisions, one of which says you can exclude for any reason, and the other says that you can't exclude for reasons of nationality?
1: Well, let me take a step back and talk about one of the differences between this case and Mandel in particular, and also this case and Kerry versus Din, which is that is, in both of What is Kerry versus Din? versus Din was a, a case where a person wanted their spouse to be admitted and wanted procedural due process on that, and they, the person lost. But in both of those cases, uh, that involved the, the, the uh, person raising the challenge had the advantage of saying that even though people from outside the country may not have these rights, they affect our rights, and therefore, I, in, in Mandel, it was a First Amendment right. In Kerry versus Din, it was a uh, privacy-slash-marriage kind of right. I simply would, would, would observe that it's very difficult to make those arguments with respect to most of the people who are excluded in these cases, right, that there are not Americans whose constitutional rights—I just— Whose constitutional or can allege that their constitutional rights are affected by this, except of course this this structural establishment clause issue, which I still don't uh, believe is, is a winner on, under current law. It would. It's very difficult to to predict how this case would come out before the Supreme Court. I think. Uh, I think Leah might have a better insight than I did, simply because I believe she clerked for Justice Kennedy, and I've never been anywhere near the Supreme Court. But uh, I think that I do believe that if the court, if a majority of the justices decided to, uh, to strike down the ban, I agree with Leah. I think that, that what they would do in order to avoid sort of destabilizing all of uh, immigration law by finding a constitutional right on the, among, for a person who was outside the United States to enter, that they could uh, rely on this conflict, the apparent conflict between 1152 and 1182, which I think is has to do with with really complicated in the weeds immigration law issues, which uh, I'm probably the wrong person mm-hmm. to talk about. Uh, but I think that you know, if it were me, I think that uh, I would interpret. Eleven fifty-two, the uh, prohibition on discrimination, more narrowly, and and uh, rely instead on eleven eighty-two, but I can't. I mean, I, I I I think it's no, and I actually have. I'm fairly confident, although not one hundred percent confident, that Judge. You asked about the Judge Gorsuch. I think that he would probably take that position. Uh, but I have no, I can't predict with any confidence whether five justices would take that position.
0: Very good, well it's very helpful to narrow in on the clash between these two statutory provisions and to hear both of you say that as likely as a broad constitutional ruling is a decision about which of them trumps the uh, prohibition on discrimination based on nationality or the authorization to deny entry to any class of aliens. Leah, you have written a lot about the Korematsu case which infamously upheld the detention of Japanese-American citizens, uh, partly on the grounds that that executive order had been authorized by Congress. Um, uh, Neil Katyal, my, my uh, brother-in-law, um, who, uh, with whom I hope to start a great uh, podcast or TV series called Brothers <laughs> in Law. <laughs> is, uh, and if there are any donors out there, just let us know because we're eager to get that show on the road. But when he was acting Solicitor General, uh, he formally confessed error in the Korematsu case. Leah, do you believe that if the case is appealed to the Supreme Court, might the court uh, finally overturn Korematsu? And how might, how might Justice Kennedy rule on that question?
2: Um, so, uh, first, just to back up a second, uh, in talking about the statutory question, um, A lot of the discussion is focused about the conflict between Section 1182, which authorizes the president to suspend um, entry of aliens or classes of aliens, and 1152, which prohibits the denial of visas on the basis of nationality. But I actually think that there is a very good statutory argument that 1182, which authorizes the president to suspend entry of classes of aliens, doesn't actually authorize the executive order, which was— Issued and is, um, and we're discussing now. And that reason is that there are certain preconditions that 1182 identifies for presidents to suspend entry, including finding that a class of aliens is detrimental to the interests of the United States. The initial order purported to make no such finding. The order currently being challenged. Um, Uh, reaches the same conclusion, you know, without any evidence in support of that. On top of that, um, you know, prior presidents who have issued orders under 1182 have identified the particular discrete group of persons who would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. You know, there's no... Uh, evidence of that here. So so there are certain procedural irregularities and deficiencies in the executive order that would or potentially could cause the court to say that this executive order even authorized by 1182 itself, even putting aside whether the limitation in 1152, how broadly or narrowly that limits the the power contained under 1182. Um, But as about Korematsu, you know this question came up in the fourth, or rather, the Ninth Circuit oral argument, and Judge Pius on the Ninth Circuit asked um, Acting Solicitor General Jeff Wall, "Would the executive order in Korematsu be lawful under the test that the government is adopting?" The, interestingly, the executive order in Korematsu allowed military officials to um, uh, quarantine areas of the United States and order military evacuations and internment and whatnot. Acting Solicitor General Wall's response was, one, he would never defend the executive order in Korematsu, and two, that he hadn't read the order. Up any distinctions between the orders. I think that you could offer a few distinctions between this case and Koromatsu. You know, the question is just how compelling they are. Um, I guess, as Earl would say, that the executive order in Koromatsu applied to persons in the United States and American citizens in particular. Um, You know, that's certainly one distinction, but would that executive order therefore be lawful if it had said, all persons of Japanese descent who aren't American citizens are you know, subject to military internment and must stay in internment camps. Um, I still think that that would be unlawful, and um, I, I would hope that the court would take that position as well. Um, second, um, you know, some people argue that, well, the order in Korematsu was not facially legitimate because it singled out persons of Japanese um, ancestry. That's sort of half right. The executive order, which authorized the military detentions, was facially neutral. It did not identify any citizens of particular um, ancestry or nationality. The curfew orders and exclusion orders, which were issued pursuant to that ex- executive order, did single out individuals of Japanese ancestry. So that would be another basis to distinguish Korematsu. Well, this order doesn't specifically mention religion in its text. That order mentioned um, national origin and ancestry. But uh, that sort of reads out the second part of the Mandel test that we discussed earlier, which is not only does an executive action have to be facially legitimate, but it also has to be in good faith or bona fide. And that has been the core of the challenge to the executive order, or at least the Constitution challenge from the outset. So even if the court were to ultimately hold this executive order unconstitutional under the Establishment Clause um, uh, reasoning um, that we've been discussing, I'm not sure exactly what it would say or do about Korematsu. I would certainly hope that it would use this case as the occasion to say, we are not willing to just accept the executive's recital of a national security rationale at face value and close our eyes to contemporaneous evidence of um, animus on the basis of religion or nationality. But, you know, I'm not sure uh, exactly what the court would do um, if Uh, presented directly with a constitutional challenge in this case. My guess is it would say something about Korematsu. It would say enough to think that Korematsu is no longer good law, but there are distinctions between this case and Korematsu.
0: Thank you for all that. Um, Earl, when people criticize Korematsu today, it's mostly uh, Justice Black's statement that there was no animus against Japanese-American citizens, failing to take into account the congressional report, which was full of baseless claims uh, which Earl Warren, when he became Chief Justice, although he defended the order as governor of California, later repudiated, and when he thought about the discrimination, he wept. So my question, Earl, is should Korematsu be overturned? And if it's not overturned, can this travel ban stand?
1: Well, uh, should it be overturned? that That's... Uh, I, can I address the second question before rather than the first question I uh, about the second question and then the first question? the first second question <laughs> and then the first question it's not all the, Leah brought up the difference between citizens it's not only that the people all of the people who were interned in Korematsu were legal residents of the United States who were in the United States historically and as late as the United as the recent decision in united states versus Verdugo or Kiedes, which was had to do with the fourth amendment search outside the united states and held that the fourth amendment did, did not, not apply. apply historically the the court has held that constitutional that people who are not citizens outside of the united states simply have the, the constitution does not grant them any rights so that in that case it is completely different in Korematsu, that the, in fact, until relatively recently, 1952 in Reed versus Covert, it was held that even American citizens outside the United States did not have were not protected by the Constitution while they were outside the United States. So the key issue is not citizenship per se. Uh, again, Reed versus Covert changed so that American citizens were protected, but the key dis- distinction between Korematsu in this case is not. Citizenship per se, but rather the uh, uh, but rather the fact that these non-citizens are located outside the United States and are seeking to enter the United States. So that that's a key distinction. The court could deal with this case without talking about Korematsu at all. I'm sure they would take a chance, the opportunity to condemn Korematsu. My only observation about Korematsu, while agreeing that the order was immoral. Is that um, it's very if if one looks in particular at Justice Jackson's opinion in Korematsu, that it's very very difficult for the court to say that something which is a war measure in the midst of the what even though other countries wouldn't have seen it this way, what's the as close to total war as the United States has been since the Civil War, it's very difficult for the court to say that. The, decision, the judgment made by the uh, military authorities, no matter how immoral it might be, it, that they're going to second-guess the military authorities. And that's, 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 so I think that as, uh, we can all agree that the, that the uh, order was abhorrent and immoral, but I think the situation was more complicated than some people sometimes suggest.
0: Very interesting. All right. You've mentioned Justice Robert Jackson, whom Justice Gorsuch has been nominated to replace. As you suggest, Earl, in Korematsu, Justice Jackson said courts should not second guess military judgments, but they also could not enforce unconstitutional orders. And you say the difference between this and Korematsu is Korematsu applied to American citizens in the U.S., whereas and also
1: people- And also other people who were legally in the United States.
0: And by contrast, you say this case involves uh, non-citizens who are not in the U.S. And under the verdugo Urquides case, which said that the Fourth Amendment does not apply to non-citizens abroad, you suggest that those people are not protected by the Constitution. Leah, your response here, uh, how would the court balance the tremendous deference it gives to uh, the U.S. in excluding people and the fact that people abroad who are non-citizens seem to have fewer constitutional rights, uh, with other cases pointing in the opposite direction?
2: Sure. Um, so first, I would say that the court has begun to recognize that the executive can't circumvent the Constitution by taking action outside of the United States. Um, uh, and in particular, the case I'm thinking uh, this Boumediene versus Bush, uh, the case that held that the Constitution applies to foreign nationals who are detained. In Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Um, so, those are persons who are not legally present um, or legal residents of the United States, and they were de- detained outside of the formal um, uh, territorial sovereign limits of the United States as well. Nonetheless, the court said that the writ of habeas corpus and due process clause, um, those protections limit what the executive can do abroad. And to my mind, if the way to distinguish Korematsu is just to say that the Constitution has nothing to say, when the executive starts to do these things to people who aren't legal residents of the United States outside of the United States, then what is to prevent the United States from rounding up Muslim men where it has embassies and um, uh, detaining them indefinitely in Korematsu like internment camps outside the United States? I don't think that that is what our constitution allows the executive branch to do. Um, And I think that the courts, later cases uh, are recognizing that there are important limits, um, some sounding in rights, some sounding in structure that apply to the executive um, when it acts abroad. And I do think that the Establishment Clause is one such limit because among the other prohibitions in the Establishment Clause is the principle that prohibits the government from acting on the basis of animus. It does not matter who that animus is exercised against in the sense that the individuals who feel the most readily apparent harm aren't individuals who possess the same kind of constitutional rights that legal residents of the United States or United States citizens do. Um, I would go back to the hypothetical I mentioned earlier where I noted that structural protections of the Constitution inure to the benefit of people who do not have constitutional rights or constitutional entitlements to the things they are claiming they were denied. Um, So I think that there are important constitutional protections that apply where the United States is interacting with foreign nationals outside of the territory of the United States. This is about foreign nationals at the boundary of the United States um, and other countries. And um, it pertains to a provision that uh, is and should limit the government um, that, you know, without... Uh, being tied necessarily to individuals who are United States citizens, United States residents with full-blown constitutional rights.
0: Uh, So interesting. So, Oral, we're really, as we, uh, I think this is the last response, and then we'll have closing arguments. Leah has said that Uh, The Supreme Court has held that non-citizens abroad do have constitutional rights in the Boumediene case, where the court held that non-citizens may not be denied the right of habeas corpus to challenge their detentions abroad. And she also said that this anti animus principle, which is located sometimes in the Equal Protection Clause, which applies to all persons as opposed to just citizens, and sometimes in the Establishment Clause, may may, may protect uh, non-citizens, even those who don't have a Right to enter into the United States per se. So, what is your response to her claims about why, in this case, non-citizens abroad would be protected by the anti animus principle?
1: Well, first, I think uh, Boumedine, Boumedjen, uh, they they focused largely on the fact that the that the United States had brought these people within the jurisdiction of the United States, and they it, it's more like, well, I'm not going to bring in another case, but it's more like, okay, we brought you into these jurisdictions. Now we're subjecting you to punishments that you wouldn't have had if you were outside our jurisdiction. I don't think this is anything like that at all. This is just people outside. This is just people outside who are, in fact, what they are trying to do is to say that we want to come into the United States so that we can have the protection of the Constitution of the United States. Uh, with respect, I, I just don't think there is any anti animus provision in, in the Establishment Clause. I think it's it's an anti uh, it's an it's an anti what's the word I'm looking for? It's an anti advancement provision rather than anti animus provision. Hmm. That the free exercise clause, which might be sometimes read into the Fifth Amendment equal protection context, in this context. If there is an anti animus provision that which applies, it is within the free exercise clause. So that and this comes back to, well perhaps this is the, the, the final argument thing. The,
0: Don't make your final argument, but you can raise the last point. And, the, 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 some the,
1: it, and this comes back to the last point. The question is yes, it is we there are all sorts of immoral things that we think that are immoral that the gov- we think that the government shouldn't do, that is nonetheless not unconstitutional, because the Constitution does not forbid it. And uh, I'll leave the rest to the the final argument, I think.
0: That's great. Well, that distinction, and I want all listeners to remember it, because I'm always urging you to distinguish your political from your constitutional views— Earl says that things that are immoral may not be unconstitutional. And he also pointed to a bunch of clauses that you've got to go to the interactive constitution to learn about. He distinguished between the establishment clause, which he says prohibits the advancement of religion, the free exercise clause, which might contain an anti animus provision, but doesn't, he says, protect uh, non-citizens. And then to make things uh, even wonkier, but this is important, he said that the Uh, Fifth Amendment to the Constitution has an equal protection dimension. Remember, the Equal Protection Clause forbids states from denying equal protection, and the Supreme Court has said that the Fifth Amendment prohibits the federal government from denying that protection, but he said it doesn't apply in this case. All right, lots of constitutional homework in this fascinating argument, which it's now time to sum up. And the first closing argument, Leah, is to you. And I (laughs) want you to tell our listeners, why do you believe that the second travel ban violates the law and the Constitution? And do you think that the Supreme Court will strike
2: it down or not? So if I could, I'd like to borrow on your brother-in-law's closing argument to the Ninth Circuit when he said our Constitution and our laws are better than this. Um, I didn't know I would have a closing argument. um, But now that I have it, I would just say, Since December 2015, candidate and President Trump has made perfectly clear what he would like to exercise his um, powers as president to do, um, namely to exclude Muslims who, he has said, find it hard to assimilate, um, have a violent ideology, Um, and various other things. He has made clear that this is what this executive order does, as as have his subordinates. Um, I don't think that the Constitution authorizes the president to make these kinds of judgments, even though the president gets wide latitude with respect to national security determinations. Those national security determinations can't be on the basis of gross stereotypes, um, unconscious prejudice, or bigotry, um, all of which I think are implicated here. Um, There's also um, protections that Congress has provided to ensure that these kinds of executive orders aren't created by presidents. Um, And among those protections is Section 1182, which requires the president to Um, make several findings and abide by certain procedures before he suspends a class of aliens from entry into the United States. The first order didn't do that. The second order didn't do that either. Um, And I think this order isn't authorized by statute. It's not authorized by the Constitution. Um, And I hope that the courts will recognize that.
0: Thank you so much for that. Earl, last word to you. Please tell our listeners why you believe that the second uh, travel ban uh, does not violate the Constitution and the laws of the United States, and what you think the court will do about it.
1: Well, I think it doesn't violate the Constitution of the United States simply because uh, I actually think United States versus United States Turner United States Ex Rel Turner versus Williams is correct. I don't think that the Constitution was designed or should apply to. Uh, non-citizens outside the border of the United States, no, no. And the reason for that is related to why I think the courts should leave this. I mean that that alone for me is an argument about the constitutional part of it. But it comes back to this basic point, which is that for good or for ill, you cannot run a railroad with judges uh, second-guessing the president on issues dealing with foreign relations and uh, national security with respect to people who are outside of the United States. Now, if Congress wants to impose constraints, and I think the statutory arguments are much more complex. I, uh, since I would tend to uh, lean toward presidential deference to the president, I, th- I think that they, are, that they should be held legal. But the point is, you can't have the president making national security and foreign policy decisions, and then having, and again, as in this case, you had three or four judges, I didn't count all those. Some of them said it was legal, some of them said it wasn't legal. So, so if you can find one judge who, wherever he's located, I don't care if he's, in, as I say, in Hawaii or Montana, who decides that this is illegal or immoral or whatever, then all of a sudden he dislocates the uh, foreign policy of the United States. Whatever one thinks of the current president or the next president or the president before, you just can't run a railroad that way. And for that reason, uh, I think the courts should defer. Again, I have no real prediction about what's actually going to happen in this case in that, in that regard.
0: Thank you so much, Earl Maltz and Leah Littman, for an engaging, illuminating, subtle, and fascinating discussion of this really important constitutional and statutory question. Uh, we will continue to follow the case as it moves along. Uh, but I now know much more about it than I did when this great conversation started. Earl, Leah, thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank you for having us, Jeff.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and produced by Nicandro Inachi. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using @ConstitutionCDR. Constitution CDR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our wonderful new email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We are a member of Slate's Panoply Network, and you can check out their full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, friends, despite that inspiring congressional charter I love to read at the beginning of the show, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by this incredibly important mission of nonpartisan constitutional education and debate. Friends, our survey suggests that some of you are members, but many more need to become members of the National Constitution Center. When you join, you'll get all this wonderful content, special, thrilling letters from me so that you can find out the latest details of what's going on behind the scenes at this incredible temple of constitutional education. Lots of great members' programs, special events. It's just the most thrilling Membership imaginable, so please go to the website and sign up now. Visit ConstitutionCenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.